of a request, but I'm going to read from um, Tapping Out, which um, was my second book to come out, but it was the first book that I wrote. And so I always actually read them in reverse order because it's how I most in my body feel the poems like tapping out feels like something that I started 20 years ago in American Family I actually started the I finished the first poem for American Family here as a staff artist in um, when I came here in 2015 so um, we'll start off with tapping out um, I am a huge fan of Mexican wrestling I am not a fan of regular American wrestling and I am not a fan of sports, so don't come and talk to me about any of those. <laughs> but if you want to talk about Mexico, Mexican wrestling, and you can even talk to me about, somebody sent me a link to the, oh God, I forgot their names already, but the women in Bolivia, I love them, and the people in Zaire who are wrestling, cool. But something about American wrestling, it got ruined for me when I was a child. I think it's another poem I've not written yet, but you know. So I'll start off with the first poem of the book, I always kind of start off there. <laughs> got to learn your microphone skills when you're, I got it. Got it. It's, this is perfect. Uh, people asked me when I first started writing these poems, why did a, bl a black girl from Detroit end up writing about wrestling? So this was my answer. On becoming a fan, don't blame masks. Blame smoke. Blame the tricky sorcery of shiny boots, capes, and props. Blame spandexes tight grip on wrestlers' thighs. When swollen biceps of mass men slap canvas, how like broken toys their bodies become, each one proffering his limbs to the other. And we, their spectators, hooked under pain's smelly spell, cannot resist runting sweat and blood. We rouse like tiny rioters, wave our fists, curse the winner, blame the winning wrestler. How he radiates center stage, how he performs his own ascension up ropes, his thick arms hot and throbbing. Blame his left foot, his left foot poised top turnbuckle, blame his hand on waist pose or the brain crowd or the thud his leg makes as he falls, hacking down on his opponent's waiting chest. Don't blame mask. Blame spicy pork rinds and their vendors. Blame bikini-clad women with corona and tecate splayed across their asses and tits. Can boys be blamed for imitating their fathers? Leaning in, praying his man clobbers the other guy. I blame a fourth grade shoving match with my sister. My forehead turned hot by an early June sun. I hadn't understood how anger like a hot spring boils at the belly's core until its hostile vapor clenched my fist. I've never tried to weigh muscle against meat, never had to throw a punch. I blame the thin hush an audience becomes as bone-tired men stumble in their musty dressing rooms, how their faces elude us each match, the windswept dirt under the feet of 10-year-old onlookers, they're cheering for my sister's grip. I blame the swirled marble buttons of our school uniforms, the impossibly long wait for recess. Blame the purple blooming bruise sketched by the brushstroke of her hands. I have not thrown a punch since. I wish I had had bright sparkling fabric hidden under my dress shirt. 
Blame the seams of this practice persona into which we've all neatly wrapped our arms. Blame the seamstress who sewed this mask and cut all the loose threads. This arena is a site for unveiling my locale for loosening the strings. Okay. I'm gonna adjust a little bit. I can't really see up here. Actually, if, is there another light? Because I really can't see my, my book. Okay, so a lot of people are, uh, the lot of things that people, people say to me is like, yo, it's fake, so why do you watch it? Um, and I, was, it, I, I say a lot about the answer that I said earlier. This is good, I got it. Um, no one asks if Cirque du Soleil is fake. And we all go see them. We pay a lot of money to go see them. <laughs> we go see all the different iterations of it. It's all, it's all a show. We all know what's going to happen. And so I think of it like that. It's a really great performative thing. So um, I did write a poem in the voice of um, the person that has to plan out the storylines. It's called Call the Match. And I don't know why out here. Nope. That's... That's a different poem. Don't know why I don't know where it is. It's probably where that post-it is. <laughs> nope. I should know where this poem is. If I can't find it, I'll, oh, there it is. 67. Call the match. When he pins your shoulders to the mat, you'll use all your limbs to throw his hold. Whip your legs around his torso, scissor him down. The crowd might cheer. They may heckle. Cigarette smoke will curl into the spotlights and the small room will feel like you're guaranteed win. None of this matters. You're supposed to lose. After you backbend his body, you will take a headbutt. He will launch you from the ring into the stands. You will fall flat-faced. Your twisted body will feel its knotted ache. Make it look good. Let him win. Refuse to get up. Listen for the low hiss of breath escaping your chest. It will feel like a tornado churning between your limbs. In a different fight, in a different city, in a different ring, you will make another man plead through the calls. But tonight, you'll taste salt. You'll taste the metal in your own bloody lip. When he slams your forehead into the bleacher, lie there, open-mouthed, shocked even, as if this is not the plan. Fold to pain, submit to the job, fall. A boy in the second row will launch potato chips into your face. A wrinkled woman might call you coward. They do, though they know your body, the arena, and their seat in your world are a false framework. Each fanatic spectator will swarm the ring demanding you perform the calls. The crowd will hate you. The crowd will love the choreography of the takedown. The crowd will go home satisfied.
So the book isn't all about wrestling, so I like to read some poems that aren't just about wrestling. Um, I got a lot of inspiration from my time living down in Guadalajara. I lived down there for a while as a teacher, and um, it was like my first job out of college, uh, teaching English, and I lived down there for about three, three and a half years. Um, so, but I always think about Detroit no matter where I am. Detroit is always on my body, and so, um, I, the poem is called Detroit Yorona, My Heart, My City. And it's, it draws, um, the person that is addressed is the Yorona figure in the myth. It's a Mexican myth of a woman who, because of hard times, her husband leaves to live with another woman. And distraught, she thinks that by ridding herself of her children, that her husband will come back because of, without this financial burden. But when he returns, he is even more distraught and he leaves her. And the story goes is that Yorona is the ghost at the water crying for her children. And they use it as a warning to children to stay away from the water at night. They'll say, hey, don't go by the water at night. La Yorona will get you. Detroit Yorona, my heart, my city. Another ripped night, another dank song, another bloated head of headline child bobs in your river, loaded barrel woman pumped piston city, seven of your boys rest a townhouse door for jewelry, for a cable box, for a game console, tossed over kitchen tables, turned another boy's face to mush, and you, you've gone and given up their ghost. Singing a murderous sinfonetta, you make another girl, another son, dance on the waves of your whales as if each bullet were a small celebration missile. I know this lost love luck is not your fault. You do not mean to change a father's body to canopy and shield. Into a dead weight your daughter will tuck herself under until your singing is done. But I've watched your strain with moan and hem, your living room floor scattered with obituaried flaking faces. I've seen your organ arms frantic wave, the length of your fingers curved around carnation stems. Each night your skin twists morn to morn, beating chest woman. Yours is a solitary grief whose wailing provokes the next hand hooked to an infant throat. Weeping woman, foolish mother. I've tried to sing your praise song, but each of your river drowned children is a clanging chord in my throat. Don't stay, you warn. You refuse to protect me. Still, I drag myself to you, kneel and kiss your oily asphalt knees. No one knows your grieving songs, our love for graveyard sorrows. If only to fondle the fringes of small caskets, I come back, I retreat, I come back, I retreat. So when I, the week that I arrived here, I think it was the week after I arrived here, because I went to Breadloaf, and um, while I was in Breadloaf, which is a conference that's actually happening next week in uh, Middlebury, um, it's pretty intense. It's like two weeks. Everybody's all like lovey-dovey and loving about being about being a writer. 
but it's very isolating. It's even more isolating than this. It's, it's on a very small, middle, very small campus. Um, and so when I got there, I was in this really intense workshop, but all of the black fellows were in a corner trying to find out what had happened of a boy who had been laying in the street for hours and Michael Brown had been killed that day and Twitter was going crazy and we couldn't understand. And so that was kind of my like induction into being here for a year and trying to understand what it meant to be in a space where there weren't really um, many people of color in this town and trying to grapple with what was happening through the lens of the internet. Um, so I'm sure you all experienced that. Um, so even, I think people think of this as, as my protest book, but I think that all my, my book, my writing has really shifted since being here. Um, so I'll read two poems from this. Um, one that feels a little bit closer to what I've been writing these days. Um, this is for Anarka, who was one of the named slaves in um, the diaries of Dr. Sim, the person who is credited as being the uh, father of gynecology. But he came to a lot of his discoveries because he operated um, without consent on, and without uh, any kind of painkillers on slaves who were deemed unusable because they couldn't breed. And so um, I think about her and I think about a lot of people who have to go through the medical system without understanding fully what the medical system is doing to them. Anarka appears again and again. Once I was a slave, then I was an Alabama woman a hushed experiment hidden between the damp thighs of Tuskegee men. Too many times I was a newborn laying next to my mother in an LA General County hospital. Her slick syllables said something in Spanish, something in English, something about sterility, something about tubes. I am plump and soft and have not always had this hair, always damaged, always ruined sent away to be fixed and corrected. I am America's opaque shadow tossed like a dog rotting on every country roadside. I've been HeLa cells passed around like Halloween candy. Are the doctors still waiting for their black offering me a silk dress of skin? Consider this. Each moment I am perched on an examination table is my break, diseased heart taken child. This is how I feel, wide, dark, lumpy, cotton at the bottom of a pillowcase. My cartilage has always been trustworthy in its role, how it performs its design duty, how it keeps fastened my flesh to my bone. If I could be more than a specimen, more than a collection of daffodils, flora would mean I was not here. Don't you see? I am still here on all fours. I was never bone nor beast nor symbol for suffering. I'm a compass for warnings, a cured tissue. 
They are still here dressing me for the cut, and I prep for the familiar cold gauze turned warm, then wet, then red. Why I don't call on cops? If my brother locks himself into a bathroom and thinks his body has shattered into a constellation of broken light, if for three hours I plead for him to unlatch the door to let me in, even if his brain refuses to get a hold of itself, I do not call. Though his thoughts are lost in the slim slant of night and his head overswamped in lead, though he takes off again, running through the living room, turning over kitchen spoons and threatens me with a potato pillar, I do not call. How can I trust they won't treat him like a corpse? I have watched the ballet of brutality break the bodies of strangers. I have seen the limp drag of a bird's bulleted wing. A mind set to pasture will chew on its own blood source. I am pleading with my brother, they will not love you. Or I am yelling as high as my lungs can yell, I will not call. Or I am only trying to say, when my head takes its risk, let it bloom. Let it devour its dead limbs. All right, some new poems. Let's start. Let's get a little lighter. Uh, this is the first one that I read that I wrote during the pandemic. Um, someone asked me. One of our newspapers was losing a lot of um, advertisements, and they asked us to. Uh, they asked a lot of creative writers to fill the pages with poetry and fiction, which was, you know, we did it totally voluntarily and now it's a it's an annual publication that we do with this journal as a way of and they actually pay the writers now for having supported them during a hard time so Larkin Street um, just say that Larkin Street for Adela I am told on Larkin Street deep in southwest Detroit Adela perches on her front porch drum in hand Every day she pounds and sings, all timber and clank, same time, every day. And I am told at this sacred hour, her neighbors from their stoops join her equally charged. Chris with his caracas, maybe Josette fingers her fiddle, and others too with their shakeres or guitars or just hands, palming a soft refrain. I've never seen Larkin Street or Adela's house but I, on the other side of town, imagine her palms, the thrash and slap, the whir and purr of her voice. I am sure a boy steps through a salsa or bachata over her, his concrete drive, and likely an elder pokes her head out of her screen door just to give a listen. I imagine a dog yowls her lazy yowl. The squirrels must flick their tails darting up and down tree stumps. Even the territorial blue jay must stop attacking tomcats each day, same time. Each neighbor orphaned in isolation uses the shared language against the melody of loneliness. Their hum or holler stirs through their block 
what delight, what thrill, my vision from the other side of town, some curb of my city no less covered in song. I love rivers. It's a big river in Detroit. It's a beautiful river making so much noise here, so I brought a river poem. River of the city, river of the strait. I want to sleep the long sleep of river to bury myself in your clay bottom, pin my spine to your shimmering city undercurrent. I want to be a city laying asleep hip to hip spooning a wide river. Cup the docks of my body to water. I want the storms of river, the thieving overflow swirling in puddles and riverbanks, the muddy grip slipped and sank deep into water. I want to learn to hold the slow ring and stutter of end of summer cicadas, to let their flutter curb my lips, to lust the pink dust skies. I want us to embrace the tangled length of your wire limbs. Detroit River, I want your rain-soaked brick skin, your lamppost burnt eyes, your tailpipe throat. I want to walk outside in nothing but river. I want to gulp down a river. I don't want to barter water with the trees. I want to show I am inescapable. I want the chest first lean of water and stone. I'm gonna read two more poems. One is like, anybody grew up in the 90s? Like, please tell me there are old people enough that like know what the 90s, like remember the 90s. Not like I was, not like I was seven in the 90s, like I was 17 in the 90s. <laughs> Cause like, I feel like, I, like I, I'm, I'm like between, I'm literally right between Generation X and the millennials and so like, People are like, I'm an elder millennial, and I talk to other millennials, and I'm like, you don't know what the 90s was like. You, you like what the 90s did, but you don't know what it's like. And so um, it's very, this is um, very particular to, this is very nostalgic of being um, a teenager in the 90s. They're, understand that in this setting, there are no cell phones. So <laughs> I, there's a reason, the reason why I say that is because some people ask, like, well, why didn't they just, like, FaceTime or something like this is pre, <laughs> pre days, <laughs> all of that. Um, I titled this. It's called Gentle, and it's named after a um, an R&B song that most people know as Gentle. Uh, they know it as Calling Your Name, but the name of the song is Gentle. And it's like, please be gentle, baby. I'm gonna be gentle with your love. Gentle. Next door, Kanitha, the early bloomer, is on her porch shaking her 16-year-old bottom to Luke Skywalker. Her gold-hearted necklace bounces with her breasts. I am 14. I do not know how my body will curve itself into desire or why at first sight some boys make me look down at my hands or at the ground or at them again. Kevin is coming over and I'm wearing my favorite red overall shorts with one strap fastened. I fix my ponytail to the same side because I know this makes me look cute. 
Kanitha, who is from Alabama and wears fake hair and fake nails, tells me I should learn to switch. She says hips and thighs are what guys like. She's got a lot of hips and thighs and I am so thin. Kevin says he likes them thin. Kanitha is loud and men always slow their cars when we walk to the corner store. Last summer, her mother brought her to live with her father and his wife. Kanitha says she came to grow up with her sisters, but they're all grown with their own kids. My mama says they didn't need no new sister. We listen to KISS FM all day. I do not understand what two people might do to make the cops come knocking or how honey can be loved, but everyone is singing about it. Kanitha and I like to listen to requests. Sometimes I wish someone would request a song for me. Her father does not like her talking to the neighborhood boys. He doesn't allow her to leave the porch. Now come and talk to me, blares out of Kanitha's small staticky radio. I want to ask her about my outfit, but Kevin is on his way. He's Kanitha's boyfriend's friend. She gave him my number, and when he called, his voice sounded like he might be fine or light-skinned. So I called him back. Sometimes he lays his receiver on his speakers. His songs are always older, like Donny Hathaway or Marvin Gaye. We've been talking for three months. Today, my mother is working. Kevin is taking the bus an hour across town, so when he comes, I can't just be standing in the street. I want him to wait for me to open the door. I want to welcome him. I don't know what I will say, but I hope I sound like how Kanitha talks to her man. Soft, slow. Um, I don't write in form often, but this felt like, I think it's the best way to think about form is when you're writing something and then the form comes to the poem versus being like, I have decided to write a Sistina. It never works for me when I try to do that. So I've been thinking a lot about um, Partially because I recent, uh, not too long ago had a, um, a benign tumor removed from my breast. And so I've been thinking about how to write about this experience. And so um, I've been thinking about sizing and bra sizing. And it's incredibly odd. So I've been writing, I've been working on two different abecedarian poems, which is just a poem that is written where each line starts with the letter of the alphabet consecutively. But I'm only using in this poem, it's the American sizing, and I'm working on another poem for the European sizing, which is terrible. But I think this one is just about there, so it helps for me to read it um, aloud. Breast abecedarian, and I heard this on Instagram the other day, so I put it in the poem. It's a quote from Drake. It says, 36L, how many letters are there? <laughs> I couldn't help. I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> Breast abecedarian, American sizing. Angular elbows and knees. I was 12 when boys at church noticed them. Then I was a small cupped girl, itty bitty titty committee queen. I wish for D cups, a bikini bob. Instead, I slipped into trainers while Dee Dee and Shayla and Candace arched their backs. Every girl curves into the weight of a body not ready to feel the slope and bust of a boy's wanting gaze. 
I touched my nipples, watched my mother hunch over and place her heavy chest in stiff lace. Then it began. My slow march through each letter, double D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and I outgrew each size. I wanted to bounce on beaches in kite-shaped string bathing suits. Instead, my size meant cheap velvet or hard lace. I pinched my body into wires and padding, narrow straps cut at my shoulders and rib cage. No pinks, no patterns, no matching thongs for girls over G, no praise for a titty too big for a halter top or strapless. Quilted stretch of nipple, dark areola, fatty tissue reduced to sex. So much of my body is a harvest of cells, or simply a spectacle. Oh, to be alone, groping their thickness, their color, their weight. I praise myself, undoing each hook, set loose my exquisite chest. Thank you. That's like perfectly twi like thirty minutes. <laughs> Tell me not.